What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Look, Living Corporate is a digital media network, right? Not just a single podcast. Okay, hear me again. I said a digital media network, not just a single podcast. So when I say digital media network, what does that mean? Digital media network means that we're creating all sorts of different types of media, all sorts of different types of media, podcasts, vodcasts, blogs, right? Uh, like talk chat spaces, you know what I mean? Uh, social media content, right? Threads, things of that nature, all types of content. And what is that network? What is this content all meant to do? It's meant to center and amplify black and brown people at work, center and amplify black and brown people at work. So often in this whole DEI space or whatever you want to call it, DEI, IED, J-E-I, you know what I'm saying? The RZA, Wu-Tang, whatever you calling it, right? Shout out to Wu-Tang forever. Uh, But whatever you calling it, there's this common thread of centering of the most overrepresented, right? So what am I really trying to say? A lot of this DEI work centers white people and white feelings. That's what, that's really what this space has devolved into, or maybe it already, it always was. I mean, honestly, we've talked about that ad nauseum um, for the past several years. But the point is, is that living corporate exists to center and amplify the marginalized voices, black and brown, queer, black and brown, disabled, black and brown women, black and brown trans, black and brown non-binary, black and brown first gen, black and brown people at work. That's what we do. And we interview executives, elected officials, activists, artists, influencers, the list goes on and on and on. And we're always, always, always bringing it back to the experiences of the most marginalized. And we're speaking truth to power by challenging the very systems that exist and continue to persist to benefit everybody but black and brown people at work. You know what I'm saying? So that's what we do. We're not really here to like coddle or pat uh, big corporations on the back that make billions of dollars every year. Um, We're here to really have authentic, real conversations in a corporate world. Okay. That's what we're trying to do. And that's what we're not trying to do. That's what we're doing. Shout out to the living corporate team. I'm so excited about this conversation you're about to hear. See you soon. Sarah, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. It's a really lovely day here in New York. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, look, you know, I want to get right to it. Let's talk about your role at MIQ. All right. Like, what are your, your key points of accountability there? Well, we have a really um, important focus on data accountability. And for us, Data is at the crux of what we do as an organization, so it has to also be at the crux of what we do for DNI in order to make it a part of the fabric of our company. And we have an annual um, idea report, so that's the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accountability Report, where we are really just kind of laying bare all of the statistics, data, and analysis, as well as all the actions we've taken in the past year for DEI topics. And it's been incredibly important for us to make sure that we are focusing on actionable metrics um, because we don't want to just say, all right, here's our metrics and we're just going to hide our head in the sand and not do anything about it. We're actually going to take real accountability to make changes that are demonstrable. But not everything can be measured. So we also make sure that we are constantly pounding the drum of being intentionally inclusive at MIQ. 
And part of that is actually we have a whole process around objectives and key results, so also known as OKRs. And IND is actually a part of that. So in order to get a promotion, get a raise, you actually have to take inclusive actions and register them in our system to make sure that we're holding every single individual accountable at the company, which has been a really helpful part of that intentionality. Helpful. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you a little bit about accountability, uh, but I want to save that for the latest interview. So um, let's talk a little bit about the landscape of workplace diversity, equity, inclusion today. Uh, what trends are you seeing from uh, executive leaders in this season, especially as anxieties of recession loom large? Yeah, that's a really great question and something that I, I feel like in every diversity, equity, networking channel, everyone's kind of having the same, I guess, uh, slight paranoia based on previous um, experiences that the moment the money feels like it's drying up, that DEI becomes a lower part of the priority list. And I would say that that type of... Um, just chatter is definitely something that is always in the back of my mind, but also I think that there are companies who have invested in DEI because it's important to the fabric of who they are. And as a company, they really believe in the work versus companies who did it reactionary or because they felt like everyone else was doing it. And that's where I think the rubber hits the road is when financially things get harder, who still continues to invest in DEI? And how do we make sure that the executives don't lose that focus on all of the work that we have done because all of a sudden they're afraid that some pieces of money are going to be drying up. So I think that when I, I really look at how we can help empower our executives. We try to remind them of the wins along the way, because I think sometimes DEI work can feel uh, in some ways like it is um, a way of protecting us from legal problems versus something that can be truly empowering to people and make them want to stay at the company. So reminding our executives, hey, look at how far we've come, look at what we've done together, gives them the energy to keep on going. And then also reminding them how they can personally take accountability for inspiring their team to want to do DEI work. And we found a lot of success actually in giving our executives really tangible things that feel honest to them, but that make them feel like they're doing something and not just watching it happen or feeling like this is being done to them, but that they are personally making progress. You know, it's interesting to that point around like tangible, practical actions. You know, living corporate, we talk about the intersection of gender and race quite a bit. And I'll tell you, Sarah, it's genuinely annoying. I'm, you know, I, I exist in this space as a, a cis-ed black man. Uh, and you think about the content uh, that often uh, comes out of the like typical corporate DEI space. It often doesn't really speak to like the nuances of being both black and male or even and we're seeing some content about black women we don't see a lot of content about black trans women or trans identity um, we don't see a lot of intersection uh, between i believe between like queerness and race it's oftentimes if it's queer then it's often like white as continues to be the default but i'm curious uh, from where you sit you know how do you navigate your relative privilege as a white woman um, to advocate and sponsor for black and brown folks at MIQ? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to decenter yourself, but I really try to look excuse me, at the work through 
a lens that's really intentional and explicit, um, specifically on black and brown folks and really on, on black women, because all of the data says that if you don't focus on black women, that they are more likely to be left behind. And yet when we create equity that is explicitly focused on black women, that it's actually proven to bring everyone along with it. And if we can extend that also into the other intersections of who is queer, who is a veteran of the military, who is um, has some sort of differing ability or neurological difference, the way in which we can capture the needs of helping and serving people so they have a more equitable experience at work actually is good for every single other person. And the more we can get people to see that, that it actually, that, that tide raises all ships can really make an impact for people. And I really think that, you know, at MIQ and in my position, we haven't nailed it. And there's still a ton that I know I'm learning but it would be a waste of my privilege if I didn't use it to advocate and to sponsor. And I guess I see my role as I need to crack doors open to every room I can possibly have access to. So that way other people can kind of come in and run behind me and jump into that room because it's so important to just kind of use what you have in any way that you have to make sure that those rooms are more of a possibility and i think that that's how i view my role within it that's helpful now let me push you a little bit more you said there's still some things that you're you know that you're learning can, can you give me an example of some things you know you're learning sure uh i think that if i stopped learning then i'd be a failure at my position um i have to learn every every day not only because things are changing so rapidly and we all have so much to learn but also I will never have the lived experience of being a black person. I will never have the lived experience of being a military veteran, but I need to know as much as I can and surround myself with as much points of view as possible from those differing um, places so I can make better decisions. So I can figure out what rooms to elbow my way into. And I think that, you know, I am an avid book reader. I read tons and tons of books, but I also participate in discussions and I like to hear from people who maybe don't come from the same uh, background that I do and sometimes in complete conflict. So I can really do as much learning as possible about what people believe and where they come from. So that way we can help create equitable experiences as much as possible for as many people as possible. Uh, but it's a never ending journey. You know, let's get a little bit meta here. Now it's interesting. You know, we talked uh, a little, like, briefly offline, but coordinated with the PR team. You know, um, MIQ provides programmatic marketing offerings in the, you know, in the market. <laughs> Living Corporate provides programmatic marketing uh, through its media network. And so we, you know, we work with brands like Textio and Pfizer and, um, you know, Amazon Web Services, other platforms and spaces uh, to really uh, drive employer branding and really help to, uh, from a, from a diversity, equity, inclusion lens. I'm curious, what ways, what are the ways that like MIQ would partner with a black owned business like us? And do you see pursuing those sorts of partnerships in alignment with your corporate strategy and goals and values? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there that this is a place that we uh, walked up to bat and we struck out a few times. Uh, we definitely have tried to create opportunities to use what resources we have, what skills and knowledge we have 
to um, empower and help, especially with economic empowerment of black owned and minority owned businesses. But as we did it, we found that they were not sustainable. They were one offs. Um, we did some things that I feel very proud of, but they weren't necessarily creating uh, replicable uh, or things that we could replicate in a way that was really going to make a difference. So, so when, uh, so, you know, typical reactionary summer 2020 experience, we said, Hey, we want to put, um, some, um, effort into, um, taking a, a black owned business and teaching them more about programmatic. So that way they can be a, um, a, make better use of advertising dollars and make sure that they have the skill set that we could lend to um, use us as a resource to better what they were doing and to use that as another channel to bring money into the business. And we did that with kind of, we found a few companies and we worked individually with them, but they were all at very different experience levels. Some were just, you know, a single website telling, selling t-shirts. Others were hugely national businesses. And those one-offs, I think we did a really great service in that moment, but it also wasn't something that we could scale. And it was different. It was effective in different ways. I would say that there were some that we couldn't really move the needle for people. And there were others where, you know, when we revisited, we said, was this the best use of their time as well as ours? Or did it feel more like something that was a reaction to wanting to feel like we were doing something? And I think it was a lot of the latter. So now we're looking at it a little bit differently. So we're looking at, uh, instead of trying to invent something ourselves, how do we make sure that we are really putting our energies behind what's already out there? So a number of our agency partners, for instance, are doing economic empowerment. How do we look at all of the places where we serve advertising media and funnel more dollars into Black-owned businesses into any kind of historically marginalized-owned business, and really kind of push that you know that lovely fire hose of advertising into certain directions. Uh, we're partnering with uh, companies like Colossus, who not only are they a Black-owned business, but they are a channel of programmatic advertising that helps create more opportunity to funnel those dollars into those pockets. And that's where I think that we hopefully can create something that's more systemic and can be more ongoing as opposed to one-offs that have different levels of, of success along the way. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that. You know, I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversations lately and continue to be conversations around like disparities within advertising and marketing spaces when it comes to um, leveraging Black-owned business. I'll give you an example. It's just like such a meta conversation, but like, I think it's important to have, right? So like... um there are so many PR agencies that will like reach out like to live in corporate, uh, like to promote like their white businesses for free. And I'm like, but y'all are getting paid. Like y'all get a, um, you know, what's the, what's the word, Sarah, when you get the retainer, y'all get a retainer or whatever the case is, but like, or, or it'll be like, Hey, you know, we'll give you like, I don't know, we'll, we'll promote you on our website. And it's like, okay, but like that. And I didn't realize I'm growing to realize, cause we interview all kinds of people. So like, but the marketing space, we don't necessarily talk to a ton of people in this marketing space, but we had uh, Bianca Reed on, who's like a, a senior executive at the Rain Agency a couple months ago. But anyway, we were talking about like 
the reality of like how, you know, it is a serious gap when it comes to um, how revenue, how revenue is shared within the industry. When you talk about historically um, systemically marginalized business owners. And so I'm really excited as I look at MIQ, I look at your branding, I look at what y'all have going on. And like, I see all these black and brown people. And so I'm just like, man, this is really cool. I would, I'd love to learn and see like, what does it really look like as they continue to take this work um, and really bring DEI like to, to practical life. So with all that being said, um, let's talk a little bit more about bring, bringing equity to life at work. Um, you know, getting past the, the liberal jargon and a bunch of terms that kind of, kind of give a metaphor of meaning. What are like some three, like just what are the three critical elements that you believe are important to like, just make equity at work, just part of work? Yeah. Um, I'll start with economic equity because I think that at the heart of it, you know, how people get compensated is such a huge place that we can make a difference and where I think a lot of people are scared to enter because they feel like it's this insurmountable problem with, you know, years of history. But I'd be the first to say that the way that corporate environments have worked for the longest time has been let's get people as cheaply as we possibly can and the cheaper we can get them the better we are doing as a company versus the mentality of let's pay people what they're worth let's pay people for the job that they do and it shouldn't have to be dependent upon the salary that they negotiated at their last company or how well they can negotiate their compensation coming into a company because that's where inequities just come in it is so hard to create a structure that completely eliminates bias towards people who are, you know, really uh, uh, good negotiators who are typically from a majority class that has the privilege to be a good negotiator. And if we strip all that away and we say, all right, what is this job? What is the range of the salary for this job? How do we compensate people in a way that creates more equity? And then within that range, how do we make sure that we are making decisions that don't put people at the bottom of the range um, based on their identity? And a lot of that has to do with kind of the historical negotiations that have happened in previous jobs. Uh, This applies to women. This applies to black and brown people. I think it really is something that if you take a hard look at it, it is um, something that we can change simply by putting a spotlight on it. So we found in our first report last year that we were paying women in the bottom half of their salary band. And any place I've worked for before would probably say, don't tell anyone that, cover it up, hide it. Instead, we're, we published it. And that was something that I felt like gave us the accountability to then do something about it. And that was really so much a part of why we wanted to create that moment. And we were able to create equity in compensation by saying, we see this as a problem. Let's look into it line by line, person by person, and make decisions that aren't based on what somebody got paid last year or 10 years ago or on their first job. But let's make a decision based on right now. And that enabled us to close a pay gap in a year. And it really just took that kind of focus. So I think that it's possible if you care enough to do so to change an equity compensation conversation. I think the second thing that is really important 
is that you need to create accountability within the company that people actually have to invest their time into DEI the same way they have to invest their time into learning for their job or learning what they need to do for their own um, success within their, their day job. You know, DEI can't be the bonus on top. It can't be the little thing we do on the side. It's gotta be part of the day job and it's gotta be part of the criteria for judging success. So I spoke a little bit about how we've embedded it into our OKR system, but I think that every company has mechanisms where you're judging how successful somebody is. And if DEI isn't one of those metrics and it isn't really something that can hold people accountable, then it's always going to be a side project. It's always going to be something that volunteers do and it's nice to have as opposed to what holds people to account to actually make change. And I think that if you don't do that, you are completely missing that opportunity to be intentional and inclusion. And then thirdly, I think that what you can measure should be measured. It's really important to have every single person know who on their team is paid in what way. How do you make sure that uh, you know who is being hired, who is being retained, what your representation looks like? where you don't have the point of view of somebody at the table who could benefit um, because they're completely missing right now or an identity is completely missing. And data allows you to really hold individual executives and leaders accountable in a way that is really hard to do if you're just constantly being the drum and saying everybody should be more inclusive versus how do we make sure that it is measurable and deliberate. Awesome. You know, I, I appreciate it. You know, we keep talking about accountability. We use that word. I love accountability uh, within the, the word accountability. First of all, I'm like a high accountability person, which is sometimes a challenge to especially when you have like a two-year-old. You know, sometimes you can't be so accountable. I mean, they're, they're two years old. What are you going to do? I'm, my wife's been talking to me about that a bit. But I will say, um, I do love uh, the concept of accountability in DEI. Tell me at what point does someone just have to get fired? You know what I mean? I think that there are many ways that people can get fired, but there are also many ways that somebody should be enabled to do well. So I'll give you an example of both. Um, so a lot of times I think that when you're going through the process of, gosh, is this person working here? Is this a good fit? Many times they haven't been given the resources to actually succeed. They don't know what the metrics are. They don't know what good looks like. They don't have an idea of what they need to do to improve, or they're being held to a standard that they didn't even know existed. So if you're not clearly communicating those things, if you're not having objective decision-making, if you're not creating the space for those conversations to happen, then you're just going to lose good people who could have probably been turned around in some way had you just put that, um, that attention towards it. And I think that that's another place where you need to be intentional. It is absolutely crucial to make sure that you're giving people the tools they need to succeed. That said, if you've given people the tools they need to succeed, if you have given opportunity, if you have looked at the places where things aren't going well and you've given them real clear direction and performance isn't there, it's important to create a culture where that accountability goes throughout. And when it comes to DEI, if somebody is just consistently doing really great in terms of, let's say, hitting their number, but they're 
making an environment where people feel uncomfortable. Their team is not being retained because they feel like they are, they don't belong there and their metrics are terrible. Then you can't keep someone just for the money. And I think that the companies need to have a real reckoning around the fact that if people are doing one thing great, but all the DEI stuff is not there, then that shouldn't be a person who is uh, the right fit for your company culture. And I think that people need to stand by that and they really need to make those hard decisions because if you don't, the long-term effects are going to be so much worse than just keeping that person on the books for another year. You know, it's so interesting. Like um, there's this, <clears throat> I know there, there, there are certain, first of all, people face this challenge every day where you have these executives or these leaders who may be driving a lot of revenue, but they're, um, but their their behavior is antithetical to the organization's stated values. Um, and the argument is, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, they're creating some headaches for us with their people, but their their PL is so big, or whatever the case is. And I and I, I think what that signals, or rather not not I think, what I know that signals to everyone outside is, you know, these values really aren't your values, right? Like your ultimate value is revenue generation. Um, and so, I, you know, I follow up question to you and I've asked this question to, to W Kamal Bell, Oop, dropped a name and pick it up. Um, but I, but I did ask that question to him a couple of weeks ago is around like, just like the long-term sustainability of like this diversity and inclusion work in capitalist context. Like talk to me about how you believe those two things can exist simultaneously. I think that it's easy short term to look at what dollars people bring in. And if that's all you care, if that's all you care about, then your company will not have longevity in this world. I think that especially as we're watching this new generation come in who just won't stand for it. If you want to compete in this incredibly competitive talent acquisition market right now, you can't keep, I don't even know if I can curse, but you can't keep assholes on the books. Like you can't keep assholes on the books. It just doesn't work because no one's going to want to work for them. And you might have a few years out of that person making good money, but you certainly aren't going to have the future of the young, smart, ambitious, hungry people who want to work for somebody like that. And it's, it's really a short-term gain for a long-term loss. Whereas companies that invest in making sure their managers make other people want to follow them, make other people want to be in their position and really inspire them, that's what creates that longevity of a company that is impenetrable. And I think that it's a really um, easy solution that's going to create a lot of weakness if you just keep people because they make you money. Um, when every other domino that they hit falls in a way that's going to really eliminate your future potential. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sarah, this has been a great conversation. Before I let you go, I got one last one last question for you. You know, the reality of inequity in America at large and corporate America in particular is it exists, persists and thrives because white folks allow it to. What needs to happen in, from your perspective uh, for executive leaders to empower systemic long-term change? I think that there's, it's always going to start with accountability. We've covered that a lot. It's got to start with people knowing where they are and how it's going. 
But then the next step beyond that is making sure that this action is woven into every single thing that every single company does at every moment. It can't just be that kind of, oh, shoot, we forgot about the DEI stuff. Let's bring it back in. It's got to be every step along the way. And I think that requires both leadership at the top that demands it as an important part of what it means to be a successful person at the company. And also every single person must have some sort of desire to want to do it. And that is inspiration from the top. It's the individual accountability. And I think that if there is this kind of blissful unawareness to say like, oh, well, that doesn't happen here. I hear that so often. Or, um, you know, we, we're better than that. Or, you know, we don't have to worry about that. Then that long term is just going to spiral down and down and down versus companies who say, this matters to me. We're going to make a change. We're going to make sure that we provide opportunity for people that don't ordinarily have access to it because we know that there is historical systemic problems that we cannot we cannot change, but we can certainly do something to to give more opportunity now today and focus on what we personally can make a change for. And I think, you know, too often companies look at it and they say, this is a giant wall and I don't know how to break it down. So instead of trying to break it down, I'm just going to pretend it's not there. Whereas I think if every single person just says, okay, I can focus on this one brick in this wall and I can chip at this brick and I can chip and chip and chip. And eventually the wall will actually start to crumble because I have focused on my one thing. Then that is where change happens. But we need to help people identify their own brick. We need to help people understand what can they personally do to impact change. And it's going to be different for every person. It's going to be different for every company. But every single person has a brick that they can chip. And I think that if we can help people find that, then that's where change is really going to happen on a level that is going to be more systemic. And it's going to be something that you can't just turn around and say, this isn't this isn't in fashion anymore. You can actually say, this is something that is a part of who we are as a company and how we will proceed every single day. Awesome. Uh, look, Sarah, I appreciate you being a guest on, on Living Corporate. Uh, and, uh, you know, thank you for coming by. Excited about the conversation. Uh, before I let you go, any shout outs? Any shout outs? Oh, gosh. Um, I have so much appreciation for the level of commitment of the people I get to work with every single day to make this change. You know, I get to be the person that talks about it, but it doesn't happen without the individual commitment of our incredible talent team that I get to work with and the leaders that I get to work alongside. Um, Our founders, G and Lee, really just looked at what they wanted this company to be and what this company to stand for and have just given us this incredible opportunity to make a MIQ a place that we can be proud of. So I will always be grateful for them. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out my husband. He is the most supportive and wonderful person who is currently keeping our kids uh, quiet upstairs. So he is um, 
the person who empowers me to do this work every day. And I'll always be grateful for him. So put me on the spot with shout outs. That's what I got. I love it. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much for being a guest. I hope to talk to you soon. Shout out to the team at MIQ and I will catch you later. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye. Take care. Yo, thank you so much for rapping, hanging out with us this week on Living Corporate. Make sure that you check us, check our content out on living-corporate. Please say the dash.com. You can see our entire network of shows. We have all types of content that we've been publishing. Um, that's all focused on black and brown folks at work. Different lenses, mental health, career development, executive leadership, right? Wellness freedom, all types of different lenses, but it's all focused on historically marginalized, oppressed, exploited, underinvested, disinvested people. That's what we're here for. So also click the link in the show notes. Make sure you check out our merch. Cop a hoodie. It's getting cool. Oh, no, it's not getting cool. It's not getting cool. Eh, I don't know. Depends on where you at. It's always some, you know, what I'm saying I'm in Houston, right? So it's never really cool. You know what I mean? It's always wet and warm or hot and humid. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. But I'm sure it's hoodie season somewhere. So make sure you go on the go on the website. If you don't want to cop a hoodie, cop a tank top. You know what I'm saying? Cop a mask. You know what I'm saying? Still wear a mask. Look, come on now. The pandemic is still a pandemic. And I know y'all don't want to act like it is. But people still getting sick out here. Trust me, I got coworkers. People be, okay, I got friends. All right, be careful. You know what I'm saying? Make sure you 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 you, you get familiar you know what I'm saying? Take care of yourself. Uh, and look, until next time, this has been Zach. Thank you so much for rocking with Living Corporate. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.